Tucked quietly into the northwest corner of the United States, the state of Washington feeds the entire country with things like lumber, manufacturing, and apples. It also gave us Starbucks and popular games like Pictionary and Cranium. But all of that does not make it immune from the kind of dark crime we find everywhere else. We're revealing the most wicked crimes Washington has to offer. You will definitely recognize the name at number one, but we'll share the details about this serial killer sadistic Washington roots. Hey all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 wicked Washington crimes. So I have never been to Washington, but I always wanted to check it out because to me it feels very like delightfully gloomy oh yeah because it's just always raining Rainy. and it just has that way about it. it's all green and pretty i think it's gorge i think twilight definitely gave it a little boost there for a while uh not sure if that's what they want to be known for but we can't always pick what makes the tourists flock <laughs> washington i don't know what to tell you sorry but also starbucks because it's the mothership i know so. I, I honestly feel like we should go to washington and give thanks for starbucks yeah, i would say so i also have never been but uh, I did go in my mind a lot when I was like 12 years old and like was actively pretending that I was Bella Swan. So like, I guess you could say I went there metaphorically. I love that. Maybe a sparkling vampire with like an attitude problem will be a lot better after we talk about some of these monsters, at least the 100%. monsters on my side. Oh yeah. Wait until we get to number one. I think it might be someone that maybe you've heard about before. Not totally mm. sure. I feel like I know who it is because I don't have this person on my side. And unfortunately, it's the first person I thought of when I saw this countdown. I don't know. But, you know, that's how this whole thing works. Elena has five wicked Washington crimes, and so do I. But neither of us know which the other one has. And just a heads up, I know we talk about graphic content a lot on this show, but today's episode is especially disturbing. Let's start the countdown. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. 
She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Ten. I'll start us off with number 10, the kidnapping of nine-year-old George Weyerhaeuser. Little George was the son of J.P. Weyerhaeuser and heir to the family's lumber company fortune. The Weyerhaeuser company operated out of Tacoma, Washington, the city where George was kidnapped and held for ransom on May 24, 1935. Generally for lunch, George walked from his school to the nearby seminary to meet up with his sister. From there, the family's chauffeur picked them both up and took them home for lunch. That's adorable. For some reason, this day, George left his school a little earlier than usual. Instead of waiting for his sister, he just decided to walk home and went missing. Oh no. The family got the police involved and quickly received a ransom note demanding $200,000. George's signature was on the back of the envelope that contained the ransom note, which was probably the most devastating thing to see your nine-year-old child's little baby signatures on the back of a ransom note. No, I can't even think of that. Yeah, my mind won't even go there. George's dad, willing to cooperate with the kidnappers to get his son back, got another note with instructions on what to do. He had to follow a series of strategically placed notes and intricate instructions from the kidnappers in order to exchange the money for his son. A wild goose chase for Seriously. no reason. Papa Weyerhaeuser finished following the instructions and got his son back. Wow. George then filled everyone in on what happened. I because, know this story, but every yeah. time I hear it, it's it feels like new. Yes. Now, George was taken while walking home, as it was thought. He was dragged all over the place as his kidnappers couldn't agree where to keep him without fear of getting caught. That must have been so terrifyingly chaotic. Like a little boy. George was put into holes the kidnappers had dug. He was in the trunk of their car often and even handcuffed to a tree in the mountains far from home. A little baby nine-year-old. The FBI tracked the bills and serial numbers given to the kidnappers as ransom, and all three kidnappers were caught and convicted. Good. Little George Weyerhaeuser grew up to become the chairman of the board for the Weyerhaeuser Company. The Weyerhaeuser Company, by the way, still in business today. Oh, wow. So good job, George. George. Get it. What a success story. What? That's a glow up. I love it. Nine. At number nine is Jack Owen Spillman III. To get a sense of who Jack Spillman is, while in jail from 1993 to 1994, he allegedly read books about serial killers and told his cellmate he wanted to be, quote, the world's greatest serial killer. Unfortunately, a year later, in April of 1995, he took his chance to jumpstart that demented dream by murdering a woman and her daughter, and then he shocked the police by confessing to a third victim. Ah. Now let's not bury the lead. Jack Spillman is in prison for life, so his big talk about being a full-time serial killer will never come to fruition. Good. Let's just get that out there. Get it out there. Sadly, though, he did act in his sick fantasy in April of 1995. 
Spillman killed East Wenatchee mom, Rita Huffman, and her 15-year-old daughter, Mandy. This alone put him in prison for life. Oh, that's horrible. But then Spillman unexpectedly confessed to killing the year prior. He told police he was also the one who killed a nine-year-old girl from Okanagan County in 1994. What? Like, how? I just can't imagine that whole entire no. situation. And so that was a year later that he confessed to that? So those poor people were wondering what happened for a year? A year. Ugh. So crazy. You'll be shocked to know that Jack Spillman was not an upstanding member of society before he became a murderer. Wait, what? So crazy. Prior to becoming a convicted murderer, Spillman had a criminal record that included burglary, theft, and assault. He and another man were also arrested for allegedly raping a woman in 1993. The woman was luckily able to escape the two men, and the charges were eventually dropped, though it's unclear as to why. He's a horrible person. And thank goodness that he is in jail forever and ever and ever. That is definitely where he belongs. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of wicked Washington crimes is Isaiah Kalebu. For years, Kalebu slipped through the justice and mental health systems, which sadly we hear about often in cases like this. He was in and out of courtrooms as his tendency to become violent was an increasingly worse problem. But a disconnect between the various courts allowed Kalebu to keep walking free. And in 2009, his violent outbursts resulted in the murder of a Seattle woman. One night in July 2009, Seattle couple Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper enjoyed a night out. They spent the evening talking about their life together and their future. Okay, ruin me. Yeah. But the next night, Isaiah Kalebu broke into their home. He raped them both before stabbing Teresa in the heart. Oh my god. Jennifer was able to escape. Teresa did not survive. It is so Break my heart. sad to think of them just talking about their life yeah. together, knowing that like in mere hours that's going to happen. Having no idea that that's, that's about to happen. Using DNA, police were able to quickly get a match and arrested Isaiah Kalebu. Kalebu's DNA was in the system because he had been in and out of the legal system so many times, obviously. Yeah. Writer Eli Sanders reported the story, which won him the Pulitzer Prize. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he wrote a book about the case called While the City Slept, A Love Lost to Violence and a Young Man's Descent into Madness. Wow. What a title. Seriously. He told PBS in an interview that at the time of the attack, Isaiah Kalebu was a, quote, nearly 24-year-old young man who came out of very difficult circumstances and had been living for quite some time with a serious mental illness that wasn't well treated. So that's sad on both ends. It really is. Because it's just like the system kind of failed here. Yeah, absolutely. Prior to attacking Jennifer and Teresa, Kalebu had an incident with his own mother where he physically hurt her. He also had an incident with his aunt who filed a restraining order against him. The next day, his aunt strangely died in a fire. Oh. Yeah. That That's all there is to that? That's it. Jennifer Hopper had the strength to testify against Kalebu in court. Amazing. Which, warrior. Isaiah Kalebu was sent to prison for life, but it put a spotlight on the fact that every time he was in court, their computer systems didn't talk to each other. So his criminal record and files didn't transfer around to show that he was needing help. Yeah, that's the thing. What that's a failure. Where, that's really sad all around. Yeah. Seven. 
seven. At number seven this week is the coin shop killer, Charles Sinclair. Throughout Western Washington and surrounding states in the 70s, Sinclair killed coin shop owners, stealing thousands of dollars in coins and claiming the lives of at least a dozen people. Weeks after his arrest in 1990, detectives still had questions for Sinclair about the extent of his crimes, but he died of a heart attack while sitting in prison in Alaska before they could get any answers. The worst. I hate that. Charles Sinclair was actually a coin shop owner himself. He opened a shop in the 70s in Hobbs, New Mexico, where he was born. We commonly hear about serial killers that they were well-liked. The same went for Charles Sinclair. People found him friendly, even. That happens so often. It it's very, yeah, it's yeah, very unsettling. It creeps me out so badly. But then in 1985, Sinclair's coin shop burned down. Investigators thought it was arson, and after some money troubles, Sinclair grabbed the fam and skipped town. Like, not a shady look for you at all. No. What no one realized is that five years before that, starting in 1980, up until five years after the fire at about 1990, Charles Sinclair was traveling around the Northwest United States robbing and killing coin shop owners. Ah. His MO was that he would visit the shop several times, maybe befriend the owners or at least get them comfortable when they saw him. Eventually, one of his visits would be his last. He'd shoot the owner and steal thousands of dollars worth of their coins. The fact that he would befriend these people intentionally first to get them comfortable? So messed up. What? One shop owner in Utah survived. Between him and another witness, the son of another victim, a composite was made of Sinclair. When they found him in Alaska in 1990, Sinclair and the family seemed to be living in seemingly impoverished conditions. So where did all the money go? Where did that go? And at that point, it's like, what was the point of taking it? Yeah. His wife, Debbie, was extradited back to New Mexico to face embezzlement charges. Charles Sinclair was arrested and sitting in an Alaskan jail cell in August 1990 when the Montana governor requested his extradition to face murder charges. But in October, he suffered a heart attack and died while police were still investigating his involvement in 11 homicides, one attempted murder, and two rapes. That makes me so angry that he was able to get out of it. Seriously. That's like, like David Parker Ray. On. I know. They die before they can face the music. It's and it so, makes me, ugh, makes me crazy. It's like infuriating. Six. Also on our list at number six is George Waterfield Russell. Motive can sometimes be elusive when it comes to serial killers. This may be one of those cases. We may never know entirely why George Russell murdered three women in the Seattle area in 1990. The only small, slight ounce of solace we can take out of this is that Russell is in prison for the rest of his life. And just another quick warning, this crime is particularly graphic. June 23, 1990, an employee at a McDonald's in Bellevue, Washington, found a body in the dumpster. The 27-year-old victim wasn't just put in the dumpster, she had also been posed. She had a coffee cup lid over one eye, her feet were crossed, and she was holding a pine cone. Investigators commented on how alarming it was that the killer spent so much time with the body. She had clearly not been killed at the McDonald's, but was placed there. That's a very intense scene to stumble upon. Then a second victim, August 9th, 
a young girl discovered her mother's body. Oh my god. The woman had also been bludgeoned like the first victim. She had also been posed. She was wearing only red high heels. She had a rifle, and it was posed very graphically with her. Oh no. And then a third victim. August 31st in Kirkland, Washington. The 24-year-old was in her bed, stabbed many times, posed with her hands folded over the book, The Joy of Sex. Whoa. Yeah. Honestly, this kind of thing, you you rarely see victims posed in such in-your-face graphic ways. Yeah, like, especially these. These are yeah. some of the gnarliest I've ever heard of. And it's, of. like, very... Everything he's do. this person is doing is, like, very on-the-nose. Right. Like, very on-the-nose brutal, very on-the-nose sexualized. Like, I can't imagine walking in on these scenes as a police officer. No, and then the poor girl that literally found her mother in that way? I can't even fathom. That's the most horrific thing I've ever heard. Horrible. So September 12th, Robin Oldenburg was packing for a trip when she heard someone trying to break into her home. Oh my god. Horrifying. No thank you. While police were coming to her house after she called, they clocked a car leaving the area and ran the plates. They had their suspect, George Waterfield Russell, and they arrested him. Turns out, Robin Oldenburg knew Russell. What? Russell had basically trolled nightclubs for his victims. So he knew these people. Yes. At least to like at least some degree. Person. Investigators were able to link evidence and witness accounts to convict him. October 18th, 1991, he was found guilty for all three murders. And he received two life sentences plus 29 years. Why? Why, Russell? Seriously? What is the... What was the motive here? Like, this is such, like, sexual sadism, too. It's like, I, what is happening here? Yeah, this would be an interesting one to, like, break down. and Yeah, the like, psychology of it all. Oh, it's horrific. Wow, that last one. Yeah, George Waterfield Russell is... A really, really, really bad one. And pretty, like, high up on the list. Yeah. I'm very nervous the for what we're that, about to get into. Yeah, the fact that there's five more. Ooh. I'm a little, I th- I, I'm dying to know your number one because I think I know what it is. I think you also know what it is, but I don't want to tell you that, but I already did. <laughs> I want to know because I, <laughs> I, I need to hear it confirmed in my heart. Well, we'll get there. Well, let's take our time. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom. And then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight, All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of wicked Washington crimes. Starting off the second half of our list is the Capitol Hill Massacre. In the early morning hours of March 25th, 2006, a woman who lived in the Capitol Hill section of Seattle was grabbing her morning newspaper when she noticed a man spray painting the word now on the sidewalk. Moments later, that man opened fire on a party that had been happening in the former Capitol Hill Arts Center. Ooh, that's ominous. Now? Like, so creepy. That night, a group was throwing a rave after party in the building. 28-year-old Kyle Huff was reportedly invited. He apparently showed up, but didn't really know anyone, so he left after some small talk. At some point, Huff made his way back towards the party, spray-painted the sidewalk where the neighbor spotted him. He then walked inside and started shooting. He killed six people between the ages of 14 and 32, and he wounded two more. He then walked outside and took his own life, another act witnessed by the same neighbor who watched him spray paint the sidewalk. So intense. What? The police searched Huff's vehicle and home and found more guns and ammo. A motive is still officially unknown. Huff was originally from Montana and was an unemployed loner who lived in relative obscurity with his brother. It still remains one of the largest mass shootings in Seattle history and the neighbor who witnessed most of Kyle Huff's actions is actually a retired director of a crisis outreach center. Wow. She helped many mourn during the days after and said, quote, I can't walk past that house without remembering it. When something that tragic happens, it never leaves you completely. No, of course. It's so sad to think that like somebody was right there that maybe could have helped him with like whatever was happening at that point. But he obviously wasn't gonna let anyone help him. No. Wow, that's terrifying. What a tragedy. Four. Landing at number four this week is Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Ridgway lived and worked in the King County, Washington area during the early 80s when he began strangling to death local sex workers. In November 2003, he confessed to murdering 48 victims, with a possible 12 more unconfirmed. As he reportedly told investigators, quote, Choking is what I did, and I was pretty good at it. You're disgusting. You are disgusting, little troll, Gary. The nickname stems from the actual Green River, where Ridgway left the bodies of his first five victims. Between 1982 and 1984, Ridgway claims he killed at least 42 women in just those two years alone. That's insane. Wild. Right in the middle of that time frame, the Green River Task Force was actively trying to identify him. They actually interviewed Ridgway in 1983 when a witness said they saw one of the victims get into a truck similar to his. This always blew my mind that they talked to him during all this. He denied it was him, and that was that. Can you like imagine? They had him, 
He was right there. He was in the building. Imagine being like the detective who was speaking to him too, like and then realizing later when you actually do get him for real. And seeing it all connect and being like, I couldn't do it at that time. Like I couldn't connect them. And he was right here. Right. And I just can't imagine like the guilt that you would be left with. That's horrible. Yeah, because obviously it's like, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and all that. Like, they obviously didn't have anything that was making them think it was him. So right. what are they going to do? They can't hold someone with no evidence. Right. But it's like, then you look at how many people lost their lives after that. That could have been saved. Just so sad. Unlike other killers, Ridgway didn't keep trophies from his victims. But he did steal their jewelry and left the pieces in the bathroom of the truck stop where he worked. It's so creepy. Which is even weirder. He wanted them to be found. Washington Post quoted him as telling investigators, quote, My favorite thing was maybe if someone's walking around with a piece of that jewelry that they found in the bathroom. That is so sick and twisted. It's ew. He's so sadistic. He is. And very casual about how sadistic he is. Cavalier. Yeah. Ridgway also admitted to having thoughts about killing his own mother, his second wife, his third wife, and even his own son. Imagine being those people. Yeah, that would be great and to then hear. hearing that later, right? Ridgway's name kept coming up as a suspect, even after that initial interview with investigators. He also passed a polygraph at one point. That's why those things are just like cannot be trusted. Yeah, not trustworthy. In 1987, detectives were able to collect a saliva sample from their unknown killer. In 2001, they matched it to Gary Ridgway. How cool is it that we can do that? D-N-A. Never ceases to amaze me. Deoxyribonucleic acid. We love it. A whole bunch of that. We love it. What makes Gary Ridgway so terrifying, as reported by Washington Post, is his self-control. He is not like a, like, off-the-walls lunatic. Like scattered. He was able to bury his evil side so well beneath being a normal, functioning friend, husband, neighbor. But think of how many times we say that now. I mean, you look at like Dennis Rader, you look at, I mean, you look at like Ted Bundy, you look at any of these, like a lot of these guys really did have that double life. Some of them, of course, you were like, yeah, everybody was like, he was weird. And I knew he was doing something. But like, there's a good handful of some of the scarier ones. I mean, John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. That people thought were great guys. Exactly. Had no idea. As prosecutors in the case stated, quote, those who thought they knew Ridgway best did not know him at all. I guess not. And in 2003, Ridgway was sentenced to life in prison. Where he still sits. See you never. Hope you're having fun, Gear. Three. Number three on our countdown of wicked Washington crimes is the Wami Massacre. Wami was a gambling club in Seattle's Chinatown district. It was one of those places found down an alleyway where a security guard let you in only if they recognized you. The club was pretty popular. On good nights, there could be roughly $100,000 within the club at a given time. On February 18, 1983, three men armed with guns and the knowledge of how much money could be there robbed Wami and murdered 13 people. Beginning in the 1920s, the Wami Club became a popular place to be for drinking, dancing, and gambling. While the gambling part is legally questionable, even cops stopped by to try their hand at winning some extra cash. By the 80s, Wami was the place to go for the higher payouts. Like mentioned earlier, the bank could reach $100,000. Not bad. Definitely the place to go. So let's talk security at the Wami. 
The wall at the club's entrance was four rows of bricks deep. It had two sets of steel doors that you had to go through when you were let in. And the office had a panic button to set off an alarm just in case. You basically had to be a regular because security guards only buzzed in people they knew. On February 18, 1983, two regulars and a newbie showed up, but secretly armed. They lingered around the club for a bit before pulling out the guns and instructed everyone to get down on the ground. They then tied up all the customers that were in the club already. As more people showed up to the club, they'd let them in and tie them up too. So people just walked into the club while this was happening. And it's like, at that point, why wouldn't you just be like, nope, can't let you in. Like, keep going. Yeah, why are you letting everybody come in? Like, that's wild. It's crazy. The gunman then took everyone's wallets and money and sadly opened fire on all of their victims. They shot 14 people, killing 13 of them. Oh my gosh. The one survivor was able to name two of the shooters because he knew them from being at the club. Good. Two of the gunmen were captured within hours and another made it to Canada for two years before he was extradited back to America. So crazy. But thankfully he was actually extradited back here. The Wami Massacre is the deadliest mass shooting in Washington's history. The club closed that day and never reopened. Yeah, I don't blame the owners of that club. We're getting dark, we're getting tough, we're getting brutal. Ooh, I can't believe we're already, we only have two left. Yeah, I don't know what's gonna happen here. That was like a very dark and twisted whirlwind. It really is, like Washington. Are you okay? Like, is everything all right? Do you want to talk? Let's put on Twilight after this. We yeah, we gotta we gotta cleanse this afterwards. I was just gonna say, we really do. Called a palate cleanser. Yeah, we need Bella's dad there. Charlie, Charlie, we need him. Yeah, that's exactly who needs to be on the case. Let's see. Two. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of wicked Washington crimes. At number two is Robert Lee Yates Jr. In the early 2000s, Yates pleaded guilty to 13 murders in three different Washington counties. He was sentenced to 408 years in prison. That's it? That's it. As it turned out, from 1975 to 1998, this suburban husband and dad from Spokane would tell his wife and kids he was going hunting. In reality, he had become a vicious serial killer. That is terrifying. That's like some a movie script. It really is. Living in Spokane, Washington, Robert Yates was an army veteran and father of five. Five kids, five and kids. this is what he did. Yates also loved the outdoors, including camping, fishing, and hunting. So it didn't seem out of place that he'd go on these hunting trips. Mm-hmm. April 2000, his wife and kids learned in the most alarming way that he was not the person they thought he was when police raided their home at 6.30 a.m. That must have been the scariest thing ever. How do you even focus on what's happening? Like, I feel like my brain would just shut off. It's just instant trauma. Police said he'd spent more than two decades prowling the streets of Washington, shooting and killing vulnerable women. Two decades. Two decades. 1998, one victim, Christine Smith, survived Yates' attack and was able to give a description of her would-be killer. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. After the raid on his home, authorities shocked Yates' wife and kids again by revealing there was a victim buried in their own backyard. 
What? So, as if you haven't had enough trauma here, knowing that your father and husband is a vicious serial killer? Oh, I'm sorry. One of those victims is literally in your backyard And right he has now. five kids. I'm sure they're like varying ages. There was probably kids playing yeah. in that backyard oh, at points where there's a body buried underneath. People like that, I swear they like love that stuff. Oh yeah, though. they like- He probably loved watching his kids play in the backyard, mm -hmm. which yeah. is sick. That's your, those are your children. Yeah, he's a monster. Yates reportedly said about that victim, he'd wanted to see her every day. That's, That's why she's in the backyard. Incredibly disgusting. When it came to missing the signs, Yates's wife told Dateline, quote, when you're so close to somebody, you don't see it. That scares the crap Which out of me. Which is really scary. But she added, looking back, he put on cologne before his so-called hunting trips, which hindsight is twenty twenty. But I guess you wouldn't even think of that. Of course you wouldn't. You would never think of it. No. Because he's just getting ready to leave the house. Yeah, it's like a very like quick thing. To avoid the death penalty, he gave up the details of his crimes to the FBI. He pleaded guilty to 13 counts of murder and one attempted murder. Wow. He was later convicted of two more murders and was put on death row. So he killed 15 people. Yeah, and I haven't even heard of this guy. I, neither have I. But in 2018, the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional in the state of Washington. So he's in for life now with no parole. Good, you can think about Where, the horrible yeah, things he did. He belongs there. Yep. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 wicked Washington crimes. Ted Bundy. I knew it. I knew you knew. I knew it. It is difficult to avoid the most well-known serial killers when you narrow in on certain locations, but we'd be wrong not to put him on the list. Though it's safe to say Ted Bundy is certainly a name the state of Washington would like to have never been associated with, yeah. sadly, Washington is where Bundy began killing in early 1974, and the state where he killed the most. When people talk about Ted Bundy, they mainly talk about the times he killed. But in reality, his first victim was a survivor. Karen Sparks was a student at the University of Washington in 1974. On January 4th, Bundy broke into her basement-level bedroom while she slept and attacked her. Sparks said in an interview that her male roommate talked in his sleep, and she thinks that's what scared Bundy away before he could kidnap or kill her. The luck. I would the luck. marry that man. Yeah, that's, wow. I'd be like, I owe you everything. Yeah. She said, quote, I think that's why he didn't haul me away like the other girls, because Chuck talked in his sleep, and I think that's what saved me. Chuck. He is the unintentional hero in that story. I was story. just going to say Chuck forever and always. Uh, like, yeah, exactly. In the same interview, Karen Sparks talked about Chuck. She also talked about seeing an older man watching her from a laundromat near her home. Oh. And this does ring true for how Bundy operated. He was extremely meticulous in his preparation before he attacked his victims. People Magazine wrote about a 1992 Department of Justice report on Bundy's behavior. It talked about how Bundy thoroughly studied his victims by following them, observing them, stalking them, and sometimes secretly breaking into their homes. This is so scary. It's always. It makes me just like never want to go home. Yeah, every time. The Department of Justice report also stated that, quote, his planning included pre-selection of a body disposal site, discreet research regarding his victim, preparation of necessary paraphernalia, and complete planning of the assault to include flight, evidence disposal, and alibi, 
Only then would he approach the victim and put his plan into action. I hate that. This is honestly what scares me the most about him is that he didn't just like troll around at night and like randomly just pick someone and go after them. That's scary I was going to say, because even that is scary. That's a whole different level of scary. It's like a spectrum of fear. That's on one end. But this is like almost scarier to me that he would literally think of everything. I mean, he knew this person ahead of time. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they'd be. He knew how to get them where he needed them to go. It's very Golden State Killer-esque. Yeah, and he didn't like just randomly, spontaneously, like, you know, find something to kill them with. Like, he planned it out ahead of time. And came... He knew how he was going to assault them. Like, more than prepared. It's horrifying. And because he was voyeuristic, when he killed victims, he did so under the moonlight or in front of his headlights at night so that he could see. So disgusting. And this is his M.O. If you know true crime cases, you probably know the way that Ted Bundy captured and killed his victims. He lured them to his car by faking an injury and needing help, or he pretended to be a cop. Bundy would then hit them with an object, including a crowbar, and handcuff them inside his car. We all know he had removed his passenger seat so that they sat low and out of sight. That's honestly one of the most unsettling things about him, is that he removed that passenger seat. Just the thought process behind that, the, like, and the terror somebody must have experienced when he opened that door, I'd be like, what like that's the, like the malice of forethought that that takes like what would run through your head so as a much victim? thought process to do that so scary now this is when he began to kill following the attack on karen sparks a month later in february of 1974 bundy killed linda ann healy he kidnapped her from the university district of seattle where the university of washington is located healy would be one of 11 victims in the state of washington Many of the women were kidnapped from or near college campuses in Washington. Bundy would then go on to kill in California, Colorado, Utah, and Florida. He also managed to escape from custody twice and flee to Florida, where he killed two more times before being caught for the last time in 1978. The fact that he escaped twice. Twice. Like Ted Bundy. Escape twice. Guys, you had one job. Watch Ted Bundy and make sure he doesn't get out. That's the thing. It's like, just watch Ted Bundy. Like, it happens once. Okay, that's that's not okay. Even that, I'm like... Not okay at all. You gotta watch Ted Bundy. But like, at Ted Bundy, fool me once, shame on me, or I don't even know Shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Thank you. Come on. How did I I just mess that (laughs) up? Come on, because you're so frazzled that they weren't watching Ted Bundy. Seriously. Well, he was sentenced to death, and Bundy died in the electric chair in 1989. Again, Washington probably would like to disassociate from this man, but he is one of the most awful men in the world, and his wickedness sadly started in that state. Yeah, I mean, sorry, Washington. number one, unfortunately. He really is. Yeah, I think Ted Bundy is most definitely number one. That's who I was thinking you had. I had a feeling. Yeah. And I like you made a comment about Ted Bundy earlier on the list, and I was going to be like, oh, wasn't he from Washington? Yeah, but then just, I didn't want to give it away. I was looking at your face trying to find I'm like, I Twitch. Could I could tell you were Make feeling Twitch. me out. Yeah. I got a good poker face. I mean, unfortunately, he's one everybody knows. I'm sure it's like, oh, God, Ted Bundy. But yeah, when you, when you like we said, when you narrow in on a state, you gotta. He's, you can't not mention him. 
No. You know, he's definitely the worst. I can't think of anybody that was left off, can you? No. I mean, some of these I didn't even know about. I know. I'm also, like, really bad at, like, geography. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't know where you're from. You're just gross like, and scary. <laughs> you're just gross and scary. So the, I think the podcast research gods did a great job with this one. Yeah, I'm sure we could do a part two. You they horrified know. me. So thank you for oh, that. Thanks, thanks a lot. And thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do, you can follow our other podcast, Morbid, anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can follow us on Instagram at Morbid Podcast or on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast. Keep it weird until Monday and pay extra close attention to your friends from Washington. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. Sound design by Kristen Acevedo with associate sound design by Anthony Valsic. Fact-checking by Cara Macarlene. Research by J.K. Heo. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, and Jonathan Ratliff. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Ash Kelly and Elena Urquhart. You aren't supposed to know about them. Unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.